Are your portfolio companies cast adrift by COVID-19? Do you need emergency cash to keep businesses afloat? This week, we'll explore the industry's life preserver, fund financing, featuring an interview with Matt Hansford, head of UK fund finance at Investec. We'll cover NAV facilities, preferred equity, and more on this episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Hello, listener, and welcome. We're recording from home today to discuss our topic, fund financing, particularly net asset value-based facilities and fund-level preferred equity. We've got an interview with Matt Hansford, the head of the UK fund finance team at Investec, discussing the rise of NAV-based facilities and the dynamics of fund finance more generally. And we'll be hearing about some of the effects of the coronavirus on this cornerstone of the private equity industry. To help me with that, I have my esteemed colleagues, Denise Co-Genovese, Associate Editor with Unquote. Hi, Denise. Hi, Kat. Great to be on the pod. And joining us, we also have Oscar Gein. This is his first contribution to the pod since he left his position as Unquote News Editor to join Unquote's sister publication, Debtware, as DAC reporter. Welcome back, Oscar. Thanks, Kat. Good to be back. So, last episode, the Unquote team gathered to discuss the early effects of the coronavirus on the private equity industry. So far, GPs have had all hands on deck to secure liquidity for their portfolio companies to weather the storm ahead. Many portfolio companies have been furloughing staff, drawing down on their revolving facilities and exploring funding packages made available by governments across Europe. Fund finance providers have also seen an uptick in interest for their facilities. We'll be hearing from Investec's Matt Hansford later, but their fund solutions desk has seen a significant increase in calls to discuss NAV secured fund facilities in particular. Investec says fund managers have been exploring alternative forms of liquidity to prop up companies, prevent breaches and reduce the possibility of having to call any remaining capital from LPs. Now, Oscar, you've been writing on NAV-based lending recently. Can you give us an idea of what's been going on in the fund finance arena over the past few weeks, particularly in the NAV facility space? Yeah, well, it's exactly like you just said, really, Kat. Um, Companies are obviously facing liquidity challenges, a lot of them are generating either very low or no revenues at all, depending on the, what sector they're operating in. Um, and fund, fund level financing had already become quite popular in recent years. Uh, obviously, our listeners will be very familiar with the kind of capital call facilities, um, which is basically just a tool for, for bridging um, LP capital calls. Uh, NAV lending is slightly different because it's, uh, it's secured against the assets. Um, but it's secured against several assets or against the whole fund or a certain portion of the whole fund rather than individual assets. So at times like this, when it's difficult to raise financing on an asset level, um, then you can look to raise across several assets and it can be uh, more efficient. And we'll, we'll hear more about the process from Matt in a bit, but I think that's uh, that's the basic reason why. Okay, great. Thanks, Oscar. And Denise, you recently wrote an article on preferred equity and how some GPs are turning to preferred equity on a fund level as opposed to NAV facilities. Can you tell us a bit about what that is and how it's evolved to the position in the market that it has today? Yeah, absolutely, Kat. Um, It's fairly similar to a NAV facility in that it's essentially a blind pool of capital for you to spend, for a GP to spend how it wants on any of the underlying portfolio companies. It's really flexible and it also sits roughly in the same place as the NAV facility in the structure of the fund. So it's kind of below any existing leverage and above the LP equity. 
and really um private equity is not new um it's been a staple of the of the private equity scene um for many years i mean we're used to seeing it provided for um portfolio companies with a specific need especially in rescue financing situations or when a company's in a bind or needs a restructuring and we've also seen it in their secondary space when an lp wants some liquidity but a lawyer I spoke to the other day said that um, recently there's been a real increase in the number of inquiries for preferred equity at fund level. And my understanding is that it's because it can be implemented really quickly and doesn't necessarily require LP involvement or consent. So it's a quick um, access to a lot of cash, albeit expensive, which we'll come on to, but um, yeah, easy access funding. Perfect. Thanks, Denise. Thanks, Oscar, for giving a a good overview of the market as it is currently. We'll be back to hear more from both of you on preferred equity and nav-based facilities. But first, an interview with Investec's Matt Hansford on the rise of nav-based solutions and a discussion on some of the issues that can arise. Hello, listener. My name is Catherine Hidalgo, and we're here at 30 Gresham Street, the Investec headquarters. I'm with Matt Hansford, Head of UK Finance, to talk about a little bit of fund financing. So Matt, could you start off by explaining what fund financing is in general? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Catherine. So fund financing has typically been subscription lines to to funds. What this means is a facility, a debt facility provided to the fund that's for short-term bridging purposes that's secured against the undrawn commitments of the fund. What's come into the fund financing world uh, in the last few years is also asset-backed financing. So again, a facility provided to a fund or a portfolio holdco that holds the assets, but rather than looking up to the undrawn commitments of the investors, it's looking down at the underlying diverse portfolio of assets. The last bit of fund finance that's often overlooked is, is financing to the GPs themselves. And whilst ultimately a different structure, it's still structured around uh, the GP uh, and the cash flows and investments that GP has um, in its fund. So that's the overall picture, and there are a number of derivatives of uh, of each of the structure. Wonderful. Okay, so um, something that's been uh, coming up more recently around the fund financing universe is a net asset value fund financing. Can you speak a little bit about that and what situations it might be used for? Yeah, sure. It's It's definitely the newer kid on the block in terms of Uh, the fund financing suite of solutions. Uh, And essentially, um, what it is, is financing based on the underlying portfolio of the fund. Now, I'll separate here between financing on a secondary or fund-to-fund portfolio, which is relatively well established uh, and has been around for a number of years. And, And what's driven that market has been the growth of the secondary market uh, and the further sophistication of uh, that type of solution with um, some of the securitizations that have been put in place. But but the newer and less well-known version of the net asset value financing or NAV financing is a financing provide, provided to a primary, typically private equity portfolio. So let's say a fund that uh, has uh, acquired 10 assets, maybe it's sold, three of them has seven assets left, uh, and at that point in time, probably years four to four to ten, so probably just outside uh, the investment period, that fund could do with or needs more liquidity. And it might be that um, there's a really opportunistic follow-on 
uh, investment that it can make. Maybe it's a bolt-on that it didn't expect to come up, but that's hugely value generative. Maybe it's defending an underlying asset. It needs to reduce the debt on the asset, uh, but it doesn't have the capital to do that. Maybe it's it's waiting for recyclable capital to come through, um, or maybe it's got some level of undrawn commitments left, but they're allocated to one or more other assets in the fund. Now, quite often, uh, or historically, that manager could have just turned down that opportunistic follow-on. But the NAV financing really comes in there as as an extra tool for that GP to allow them to go and make that investment. So it's a facility provided to the fund or to a whole co, really to allow them that extra bit of liquidity in the fund to uh, to go and generate extra value for the LPs. Wonderful. So um, how comfortable are LPs with this new uh, kind of instrument? Well, it's something that certainly being newer, it's certainly going through an education phase, both with GPs and with LPs. But it's something that's going to be pretty obvious to LPs. Um, Either it's going to deliver more value or more investment value into the portfolio, or its other use is actually to provide a distribution back to LPs. Now, we found that GPs um, are pretty cautious around the way they consider this. And we found the way this has worked successfully in the past has been really through real clear purpose of why the GP thinks this is a great idea for the fund uh, and therefore for the LPs. Uh, And really the transparency with that LP group and how they articulate that purpose to the LPs. Um, you see situations such as uh, a portfolio that maybe is under-levered underneath. So a portfolio, go back to that seven assets in the portfolio, that the underlying leverage has fallen to, let's say, two times. And actually, it's more appropriate for that portfolio to be levered at four times. Now, the manager could go and um, complete a number of dividend recaps on the underlying portfolio. But let's say it's got to go and do three or four of those, probably with assets and management teams that are really pushing the growth of the business and are really focused on the exit of the business. The alternative there might be to take an NAV financing at a whole co or a fund level. And given that's one financing versus three or four, Mm. clearly that's going to take a lot less time. Uh, It's going to take less interaction um, with the with the lenders and the GP than three or four. And it's going to take up a lot less of management's time in the underlying assets. In fact, there'll probably be only limited interaction with the with the management teams in the underlying businesses. So there it's a clear alternative um, to, uh, to doing something at, un- at the underlying asset level. And when L- we found when LPs hear that type of level of purpose and understand it's an alternative um, to to another form of liquidity, it's much more easy to to get your head around, and uh, they're much more comfortable given the given the clear purpose. Wonderful. So, kind of returning back to the whole world of fund financing in general, there has been some controversy around using fund financing to boost IRR. Where do you stand on this controversy? Yeah, I mean, it's it's debt rather than equity, and so therefore, in pure capital structure theory, it will boost. IRR. I think there's been a lot of controversy, as you say. What we've seen as a result of this is probably two things. Um, And it goes back to that point that that you can make around transparency. What we've seen is GPs uh, being really transparent with their LPs around how they're using their subscription line facility 
and where they're using it. So whereas a few years ago we might go to, might be invited to uh, a fund or a manager's uh, annual investor meeting and frankly the, the capital call or subscription facility was barely mentioned. It might have one line and, and you know, understandably so. Given all the noise in the market, quite often we're seeing managers present one or two slides to their LPs to say, look, we used it in these circumstances, this is how much it was used, and this is the effect. So there's a real transparency around and real purpose around why they've used it. I think what it's done, it's, it's certainly brought a hell of a lot of awareness um, to the market. LPs are very aware of this and, and are much more aware of what terms affect using a subscription facility in the, in, in the funds LPA documents. Uh, and it's brought uh, more awareness and, 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 and thought processes to the GP around how do they use it, what's the house view of using it, um, what are the situations where it really benefits them. It certainly boosts IRR, um, but I think you know, if, you look at certain, if you look at studies that was one done by uh, Montana um, in the last few weeks, the, the difference for a good GP, uh, the difference in IRR is not huge. Interesting. Um, so could you talk a little bit about kind of risks of fund financing? Because previously it's been considered a very safe form of lending. So I'm just wondering if there are actually any risks to it. Yeah, I, there certainly are risks. It's, it's debt, it's credit. There's always going to be some, there's always going to be some risks. Uh, we're in the business of, of taking on those risks and managing those risks. Again, I separate the market into at least two components for funds. One is the subscription line financing, the other is the NAV financing. And maybe I'll start with the subscription line financing because that's where most, certainly where most of the market noise is and it's the most mature part of the market. To give you a sense of the perception of risk, uh, you know, there are in Europe alone 50 plus lenders now in that market. There's a lot of people that have come into that market uh, and they've come into that market in a generally good environment. You know, they've come into that market post the crisis and the subscription financing facilities have performed very well. Now, what we have seen in that market is clearly um, there was a lot of news surrounding the the Abraj situation, uh, and that certainly made lenders in this market stand back and consider these subscription lines and really think about the risks in them and and actually really what matters. Um, and what we've what the result of that has been some additional terms, some amendment to the way uh, lenders look at these facilities. So whilst not vastly different, it, it has made people tweak the way they look at it and it certainly made people realise that there is some degree of risk in it, albeit you look at where pricing is, you know, it hasn't, there wasn't an increase in pricing on the basis of that, more a bit of an adjustment um, to a few terms. So clearly uh, the results of um, the, the market and the perception of risk is still pretty low because these facilities still price at, you know, for good GPs and good funds, sub 2%. Wonderful. Thanks so much for having me here, Matt. Uh, thanks for joining. Thanks, Catherine. That was Investec's Head of UK Fund Finance, Matt Hansford there. Oscar, we heard from Matt briefly on how fund financing facilities in general can be priced at sub 2% for well-known and high-quality GPs. This was, of course, before the coronavirus crisis and things have obviously changed a lot since then. How has pricing shifted over the last few weeks for NAV-based facilities? Uh, yeah, I think when he was talking about the 2%, that he's probably referring there to uh, like the vanilla capital call facilities, um, which I think 
GPs are, are making some use of it in the current environment. Uh, basically, just if you still have dry powder left in the fund, then you can make use of that to shore up liquidity. But rather than actually calling down the capital from LPs at this time, you just use the uh, fund financing bridge. And then hopefully you don't actually have to call all of it down from an LP. Like if we come out of lockdown in three months or so um, and the uh, bank financing market comes back on the asset level, then you can just refinance some of that. Um, but at the, uh, for the for the kind of NAB based lending facilities, pricing would be slightly higher. Even in normal times, you're probably looking more at something around 500 basis points um, from a bank and fund solutions, obviously a little bit more flexible, offer a little bit more leverage and probably a little bit more expensive, maybe into the sort of uh, high single digits. Um, but what we've seen across all credit markets is, is pricing shifting upwards. It's the same in this space, probably an additional 150, 200 basis points that you can you can put on top of that. Obviously, it is dependent on the kind of the status of the GP. Like you said, that sub 2% for the, the capital call facilities is really just for the top tier. Um, and then PREF equity is a bit more expensive again, which you've been looking into, Denise. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. It's much more expensive. I mean, the way it was explained to me is you would definitely think twice before um, raising a preferred equity facility at the fund level. I mean, unless you really needed to, because it is really expensive. Some people told me that it's definitely above 10% and definitely, you know, in most cases, teens, mid-teens. Um, but my understanding is that... Um, it's quicker and it's a bit more flexible because NAV um, potentially takes a bit more longer to put in place as well as being more restrictive. Because if you think about it, a NAV facility is still credit, it's still considered leverage and it's got a whole security package attached to it, thereby making it a safer option because you've got a claim on underlying asset, so it's sort of cheaper in inverted commas, whereas preferred equity is unsecured, it's riskier for the provider, for the lender, and therefore it's more expensive to use but it actually only asks for payouts when there's an actual cash flow from um, the company, underlying portfolio companies. And typically there's not a quarterly, half yearly or sort of mandatory payment schedule. And I think the big sales pitch of preferred equity GPs is that it's usually unhindered by restrictions on the ability of the GP to deal with its portfolio and kind of do what it does best. And it just relies, it's just a contractual entitlement it has to cash flow from the underlying portfolio companies. So no one's going to tell you what you can or can't do with it. So, Oscar, what kind of lenders, um, I'm sure for those of our uh, listeners who are GPs out there thinking about these kinds of facilities, what kind of lenders are out there for these um, and what should GPs be looking for? Oh, I guess they should be looking first and foremost for someone that's going to lend them the money. Um, I don't know. There's, there's a whole kind of range of factors that you'd look at. Um, as I was saying before, there are like there are banks that are active in this space. Um, an interesting thing, often the banks will try and kind of syndicate these facilities out or GPs sometimes even look to make sure that they don't have all their facility with one bank. Um, because somebody at a PE firm was saying to me the other day, you know, maybe it's, it's unlikely, but if everybody tries to draw down on these facilities at the same time, maybe the banks are actually going to have some issues with meeting the obligation. So if you can diversify that risk a little bit by having a couple of banks, then you'd do it. Um, there are also funds that offer these type of solutions. We know uh, 17 Capital Vision, uh, for example, have been doing a, a bit of a strong marketing push. I think the, the managing partner of 17 Capital was quoted in the Wall Street Journal as saying that they'd had something like two and a half billion worth of new business since this crisis started. 
Um, but what should GPs look for other than that? I, I guess they should look for somebody that's experienced in the space, um, someone that's going to give them the flexibility and pricing that they're looking for. There are a lot of different things to consider, but first and foremost, who's going to be able to provide them with the liquidity that they need? Right, makes sense, absolutely. So, uh, Denise, kind of what I think that you and, uh, and and Oscar, and certainly from based off of Matt's interview as well, what you kind of all agree on is that these facilities are typically aimed at fully deployed funds. Do you think that we'll even start to see those that aren't fully deployed tapping this market given this pandemic? Um, yeah, I don't know what you think, Oscar, but in terms of preferred equity, yeah, possibly. I mean, I think, as we've said before, most people will have drawn down on their overdrafts, drawn down the revolving capital um, facilities, and those ineligible sectors will have tapped into government funding, rescue funding. Um, but many, I think, will be trying to add an additional buffer you know, with the coronavirus situation, the key question for all the businesses is how are they going to get the cash to keep them ticking over? I mean, we don't know how long this is going to go on for, do we? So, yes, maybe even those that aren't fully deployed will start to think about these options, especially if they want to buy themselves, you know, some extra leeway. What do you think, Oscar? Yeah, exactly. I mean, like you say, first port of call is going to be, can we get any emergency funding from the government? Uh, is there any sort of any deal that we can make with our existing lenders? Can we raise any cash on the asset level? Um, and if that's not possible, can we use our capital call facility? If that's already fully drawn down and there's no dry powder in the fund, can we look at these slightly more expensive options like uh, like NAV and even preferred equity? But like a, a banker in the sector was saying to me the other day, like, you know, yes, they will lend you the money um, or they'll give you the money through these pref equity options, but, you know, they're going to take an arm and a leg to do it. So it really is a bit of a last resort, I'd say. Okay, great. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. Do look out for our upcoming episodes on secondaries and the coronavirus, as well as a special on insurance. Please take the opportunity to subscribe to the Unquote Private Equity podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or of course, continue listening on unquote.com. A very big thank you to our two panellists today, to our special guest, Matt Hansford, and as always, a big thank you to you too, listener. Speak to you soon. Listener.